Um, uh, that's where we're at this morning, and I'm going to go ahead and pray as we begin to, to go through this. Lord, as we prepare ourselves, um, continue to prepare ourselves, Lord, for um, your word. We want it to be more than just an intellectual understanding that takes place, Lord. We want the information that enters into our minds to transcend down to our hearts, Lord, so that we may know you more, so that we may understand your will for our lives, so that we, God, may apply, that we may be hearers of your word and doers as a result of, of, of hearing this morning. Father, we lift up this time together. We, we confess, God, that your word is truth and that we can rely upon it and cling to it as it guides us through this life. Lord, we're grateful, Lord, that you've given us this revelation so that we are not lost or, or left alone. And Father, we trust that you're going to speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons, and, his son, and, and he said to them, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and all that moved on the earth and all the fish in the sea. And they are given into your hand. Now, I'm a hunter and I wish that God wouldn't have done that because it would have made hunting and fishing a whole lot easier. But at least there's some sport in it. But in verse 3, it says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is the blood. Surely your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of every man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he had been made. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons and said to them, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, with the birds and the cattle and every bird, or excuse me, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be... When I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. Um, I kind of want to share something before we go into this, and I'll tie it all together. But if any of you guys know me at all, you, it's probably no surprise that, that you know that I don't really care for musicals. 
You know, those movies that have a lot of singing in them. I pretty much think they're the least enjoyable type of movie to watch. It's not that I don't like music or singing. I just don't like the fact that in a musical, it seems like when things are just about ready to get moving, when something exciting is finally about to happen, there's always this highly predictable and unwanted interruption when everyone starts singing. And even though I'd much rather watch an action and adventure type movie or uh, a Western with John Wayne, um, my wife, on the other hand, um, watches these kinds of musicals. Consequently, I've watched more musicals than I would like to admit. But of all the musicals that I've watched, there's one that I don't really mind so much watching. I don't know if I'll really come out and say I like it. But I don't mind watching it. It's the movie called Fiddler on the Roof. You guys familiar with that movie? You like it? All the ladies. Mm -hmm. Some of the guys. But in this movie, there's this particular song. It's called To Life. And um, it's, 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 it's one of the happiest, if not the happiest, song in the movie. And it's sung by the main character, a man called Tevi. And, and it's sung in response to this engagement agreement that has been reached between him and the wealthy butcher of the town. And as you know, Tevi's pretty excited. This guy's much older than his daughter. And at first, he's not, he's not for it. But then he begins to think about, hey, this guy's rich. And, and um, he works through all the details, and they end up coming to an agreement. And of course, right when things get moving again, they all, he starts singing. And... Um, they, Tevi and, and, the bar, and the butcher, they end up making their way to, to uh, the bar, and a bar that's full of men, both Jewish men and Russian men, and they all begin to sing together really this high-spirited song with dancing that's, that's, that's pretty cool, and, um, but the song celebrates the blessings of life, the blessings that life has to offer. And the cool thing about this song and about the movie as a whole, which is a dramatization of village life and what it was like for the Jews who were living in the early 19th century under imperial Russia with, with the Tsars. And we, we actually know that there was some persecution in the Jewish people during that time. But as it depicts this, what we see is that in spite of all the hardships, in spite of all the uncertainties of life that Tevi and his family and all of his fellow Jewish people were facing... <coughs> Excuse me, they see that. We see that they still celebrated life. To life, he says. To life. And they celebrated life as a generous gift from a generous God. And whether it was the announcement of an engagement, like with Tevi and his, his daughter. Uh, and this butcher, or the birth of a baby, or even in the movie, Arrival of a Sewing Machine. You remember that scene. These Jewish residents of this small Russian village always found reasons to give thanks for the blessings of life. To life. And I point this out in light of what we read here in chapter 9, because in these first 17 verses that we read, we read of God addressing the eight survivors of the flood. And he gives them instructions in these verses, specific instructions concerning four areas of life. 
multiplying, sustaining, protecting, and at the very end, enjoying life. You think about it. Why did God save Noah and his family? So that they might live. So that they might have life. And so God begins to develop this afterwards and give these instructions concerning life. Life after the storm. After the judgment. And even though these instructions were given to Noah and his family, they must be seen for us as permanent instructions from God for all of humanity, which still applies to our lives today. So as we begin to look at these verses here in chapter 9, I'd first like to look back to chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, because in those last two verses, there's a significant thing for us to notice as we bounce into verse 1. And in these verses, back at the end of chapter 8, what we're reading of is of Noah's response to God for saving him and his family. Noah's response to God for giving him life. And when Noah came out of the ark, we're told that he built an altar to the Lord and that he then began to make offerings or sacrifices on it, which in turn were a sweet aroma to the Lord. And in light of this, we see how Noah's heart, having been filled with gratitude, right, praise and worship, how it had been filled with these things, he desired to honor God as a result of the grace and the mercy, as a result of the life that he had been given to live, that he had received from God. And so in verse 1 we read, then God, in verse 1 of chapter 9, blessed Noah and his sons. He'd already saved them, right? And some of us might think, isn't that enough? God just saved Noah and his families, out of all the other people on the earth, not because Noah was anything special, but because God had favor on him. God chose him. God was gracious to him, merciful and kind. And yet, Noah, as he responded with a heart of gratitude, with a heart of love, with a heart of worship, the very next thing we read here is God blessed Noah and his sons. And in light of this statement, an attribute of God is being revealed to us. A wonderful attribute of God. Which is the fact that God is good, and our good God will never be outgived by us. And even though there is not a specific verse in Scripture that declares a clear teaching on this, that God will, will never be outgiven, or that God will never be our debtor, meaning no matter how moved we may be or or how much we have this desire to give back to God and there do so for what God has done for us is a response of worship and praise and and thanks the truth is, is the blessings of God that we have received and the blessings of God that we will receive will always be greater in proportion than what we are able to give always can't outgive God an example of this is found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, which says, God says, bring all of your tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And he says, and try me now in this. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will be not room enough to receive it. And the awesome thing about this example is that the tithe 
was an act of obedience to a command that God had given. And, and even though a tithe was to be given and is to be given with a heart of gratitude, with a heart of willingness, with a heart of thanksgiving, a tithe was not a love offering. A tithe was not a free will offering like which we read here of Noah, or like we in our lives just feel so overwhelmed by the love and goodness of God, we go, God, I just want to bless you. And we do things, or we, we follow after Him, or, or, or you, you guys know, it's, it's your, your offerings are different in many ways. But the cool thing about the message in Malachi is, is, is that even when we bless God by an act of obedience, because it is, you know what, think about it as a parent, is it not a blessing when your children obey you? You're like, yeah, finally! You clean your room. <laughs> Molly. <laughs> yeah, it's a blessing. But, but even, when, even, even, even when we bless God by our acts of obedience, the Bible tells us, the Bible makes it known to us that we're going to be the ones who receive the blessing, the greater blessing from God. And, and with God, we will always get back more than we ever give. And so God blessed Noah and his sons. And in addition to God blessing Noah and his sons, we read here in verse 1 that God then commanded them. He gave them a command, an instruction to say, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill all the earth. Does not sound a little bit familiar? The things that we've been reading and studying through up to this point. And you see, and when Noah came out of the ark, he was literally like a second Adam, was he not? The one whom God would use to usher in a new beginning on the earth for all the human race. And Noah's three sons, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, according to verse 19, which we didn't get to, you can read there, it says that the whole earth through them was repopulated. And in light of this, we need to keep in mind that the command to be fruitful and multiply was the same command that was given back to Adam and Eve. God brought Eve to Adam Adam said, woo, man. He was excited. And God said, be fruitful, multiply. And that same command we read here, that God, after having judged the earth, then gave this command, not once, but three different times to Noah and his sons. Back in chapter 18, verse 17, then here in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, and then again in verse 7. And we see that, that, that God was essentially commanding Noah to start over, right? The point is, Noah and his sons, according to God's plan, Noah and his sons, according to God's plan, were to be a part of the restoration process. God was including them in it. And when we consider this as it applies to our own lives today, we must first remember that, children, or that God describes children as a what? A blessing, as a blessing from the Lord, not a curse. And that's important because that's not, the, that's not a lot of the thinking today in the society that we live in. And to have many children and many grandchildren in the Jewish culture, that was an evidence of God's favor upon you. Sadly, I hear a lot of young believers today saying, we don't want kids. And they, have many, they, have, they all have many reasons for why they say these kinds of things. Things like, we're waiting for the right time. Or, or we don't want to bring kids into this corrupt and evil world. Or even that, you know what, our lives are just better without kids. But even worse 
then those who abstain from having kids are those who get pregnant and then refusing to honor God's command, God's instruction for life to be fruitful and multiply, they, as you know, in such a, such a, a, a prevalent way in our culture today, they, un, they abort their unborn baby. As a result, the Centers, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention now report that as of 2015, almost a fifth of all pregnancies in the United States end in an abortion. A fifth. And since abortion was made illegal in ni- or made legal in 1973, there's been more than 53 million babies who have been aborted in the U.S. alone. Now, whether it's a married couple who makes a decision to not have a child or a couple who chooses to abort their baby, the fact of the matter is, is they both have wrongly concluded that children are not a blessing from God. And in forsaking this command to be fruitful and multiply, they miss out on a blessing from God. God wants to bless us. And so God blessed Noah and his sons. And in, 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 in missing out on that blessing, people today miss out on part of God's plan of restoration that's still taking place today. And I say in part, in part they're missing out because being fruitful and, mul- being fruitful and multiply in our time as believers, it has a dual application. It has a spiritual application as well as a physical application, which we were talking about. And just like God had saved Noah by the ark, and this is where it all ties together, we know that God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has saved us. And just like Noah was called to be a part of God's plan of salvation, we too, or, or a plan of God's, part of God's plan of salvation and restoration, we too are also called today to be a part of God's plan of salvation and God's plan of restoration that comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the awesome thing about being a Christian is our hope of eternal life, the eternal life that we've received through our faith. Yet God tells us, guys, that the eternal life is just the icing on the cake. The eternal life is just the icing on the cake, meaning God's desire is that we have life and life more abundantly. Life and life more abundantly. In other words, God's desire is to restore back to us that which has been crushed. Did you experience any crushing out there in the world before you gave your life to God? Did you experience any brokenness? Did you experience any thievery? in where your sin and Satan had crushed and stolen and broken? We all had, and God's desire is to restore these things. Furthermore, God's, God's desire is to heal us. And God does all these things by using us in each other's lives. We are His instruments. We are His vessels by which He does this work. And for this reason, we know that God has given us His Holy Spirit so that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit might be manifested in us in order to complete this process of restoration. And in this, we know that we're called to love. We're called to pray for each other. We're called to encourage one another and to build each other up in the Lord. We're called to come alongside one another when we stumble and fall. And we're called to share our lives with each other, not only in the times of suffering, but also in the times of rejoicing. So, as the Lord instructs, 
be fruitful and multiply. Filling the earth with God's love, which really, guys, is rooted or seated in a heart that desires to see people restored to the abundant life that God has waiting for them. Verse 2, we read, and it says, Now, if you look there, it says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and all that moves on the earth and all of the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, we've got to keep the context of what we're, we're, we're discussing here, or it's going to seem kind of random and out of place of what we've just read. But in addition to concerning, in, in, in addition to a concern for multiplying life, right, God's dealing with the world after the flood and giving instructions and commands for what needs to take place. And in addition to a concern for the multiplying of life, the repopulation of the earth, we see here in these verses that God was also concerned about sustaining life. And the fact of the matter is, is we consider what it thinks, when we we consider what we think we need to sustain life, isn't it not often different than what the Bible teaches us? I can tell you like 10 things right now that I need. Or that I think I need, right? For example, I once read a study that said a survey was taken in 1900, I think it was 1905, and it revealed how people felt they needed 72 things in order to function normally and be content. What do you need to function normally and be content? What do you need? Well, in the 1900s, it was 72 things. And when a similar survey was recently taken, the number of things people believed that they could not do without, it grew from 72 to more than 500. Sadly, this number to our own deception is ever increasing as we attempt to fill our lives in this world with the things that we believe will sustain us or make us content. And we just keep cramming in and cramming in and cramming it in. Yet when we look to the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 24 to 34, in his Sermon on the Mount, he taught the same principles of truth in regards to need and contentment, when he spoke about the birds of the air and the flowers of the earth, saying, if the Heavenly Father clothes the flowers of the earth with beauty and gives the birds of of the air their food, surely He will provide food and clothing for His own dearly loved children. Why? For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. He doesn't say cars and cell phones and and um, computers, what? Well, that's probably on there. So that's, that's food. There you go. But when we consider these verses here that we just read, which tells of God's concern for sustaining life and also protecting life, because that's part of it, we need to notice that it was rooted in this covenant that's mentioned in verse 9 that God made with all of mankind. And with this covenant, we see that God's declaring three things, if you're taking notes. That there would be a change 
Okay, think about this in regards to sustaining and protecting life. God was saying, there's going to be a change now. Noah, things are different. There's going to be a change. There's going to be a change in the food that you eat. A change in the food that men, the, 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 the type of food that men would eat. There would also be, a God saying, there's going to be a change in the structure of authority. And also alongside this, God says, there's going to be a promise. A promise to never again destroy the earth by water. And guys, at the root of all three of these, these instructions or these, these, these things that are wrapped up in this one covenant, it all points us to God's love for us. So in regards to the food that men would now eat, we must remember that when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, gave them the fruits and the plants for food. But after the flood, according to what we read here in verse 3, God expanded our human diet, thank you, Lord, to include every moving thing that lives. And God had changed that in order to sustain human life. God did that to sustain human life. Because before the flood, things were different. We clearly read that the the climate of the earth was different in that there was this vapor canopy, canopy, we're told, that covered the whole earth, and then there was a mist that came up from the ground that watered the plants of the earth. And this vapor canopy and the moisture that rose up, it would create a greenhouse effect that made it very favorable for the plants, the vegetables, the fruits to grow. Yet when the rains that brought the flood began for the first time ever, In the history of the earth, this vapor canopy ceased to exist. As a result, there was a change in the climate. And like we see today, this change brought with it different seasons, right? Seasons that consisted of times of hot and times of cold. And back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, if you look there, God told of these changes that came after the flood. He said, it's one of the things he said, no, now it's going to be like this. There's going to be these seasonal changes. There's going to be these climate changes. Consequently, these seasonal and climate changes made a difference on the quality and on the quantity of the food supply that man had been originally given permitted to eat. Scott's a gardener. Scott, can you grow vegetables in the winter outside? No. There's an effect on the quality and the quantity of food as a result of the change. So God changed this. After the flood, men now became hunters. (laughs) And, and, and our relationship with the animals changed because the harmony that mankind once had with the animals was lost. And God was doing that to, to sustain and protect the life of all animals. It would be really easy to hunt elk if they just walked up to you and took the grass out of your hand. It may not be any fun, but you get the point. So God explained in verse 2 that the animals which were now given to us as food would fear us and they would do everything possible to escape that threat of death. But with this covenant, guys, with this covenant that God made, and with the command to now eat meat, we see, and by the way, that's a command. There's a command to eat meat. We see barbecue. We see, in all of this, we see God's love for us. Not, not because God wants us to eat barbecue, but because God was sustaining life. God was concerned about life, our life. The life of mankind, and he provided for our needs. 
But in addition to this, this, these covenant instructions that pertain to the sustaining of life, God also, here in vice, verses 5 through 7, if you read, read those again, you can, and we've already read them, but we see God's given instruction that pertains to the protection of life. The multiplying of life, the sustaining of life, and the protection of life. And the second thing that God declared in this covenant that he made with Noah is that there's going to be a change in the authority structure. A a change in the authority structure as God then set a foundation right here for our human government. Prior to the flood, God had given each man the responsibility of governing himself in relationship to what they had with God. And because man had separated from God, he was given over to evil, the Bible says, continually doing what was right in his own eyes. And this was first evident with Cain, who killed his brother Abel. And then in chapter 4, verse 22, or 23 and 24, we then read about a man named Lamech who killed, it said, a young man. And not only did he kill a young man, he took it to the next step where he began to brag about what he had done and then mocked God, saying, come judge me. And eventually we read there in chapter 6 as we were continuing up to the point where God Judge the earth. We read in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, how all the earth, it says, had become corrupt and filled with all kinds of violence. So, just like God had put the fear of humans into animals, God was now putting the fear of himself into human beings, lest we destroy one another. And so, God in verse 5 clearly spoke of how he would not demand or, 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 or of how he would. Now, demand a reckoning, and in doing so, God was giving mankind, if you read there, the key verses in verse 6, He was giving now mankind the responsibility and the authority to govern one another when He said in verse 6 that if someone takes a human life, their life should then be in turn taken. And in light of this, we can see that government was established by God because... The human heart was still evil because our hearts are evil. And, and, and the truth is, the fear of punishment can restrain those who would seek to break the law. We apply this tactic in my own home. And, and we know that this doesn't always work, right? It's not foolproof. God entrusted this with flawed men. And it doesn't always work. Because our law and our government who enforces the laws, they can't ultimately regenerate the heart. This can only be done by the grace of God. So even though human government has its weaknesses, even though our human government has its limitations, and we've truly seen a decline in the effectiveness and the godliness within our human government, it's clearly better than anarchy. And better than every man doing what is right in their own eyes. Although I want to offer the caveat that I know that we're pretty much back to that same place. Which is another evidence, guys, the Bible says, that we're close to the second judgment. The time when God will come and judge the earth for a final time. But the fact of the matter is, or, or the fact that God set up this provision after the flood for the protection of human life, it also points us to God's love. Remember, the government God sets up, we're told, and the authority that that the government's been given, God says it's for the protection of the people. And the Apostle Paul, writing about this to the Romans in chapter 
to the Christian Romans, he, he wrote in chapter 13 of the book of Romans, verses 1 through 5, he says, As everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And, to, and, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For God is the servant, for he is God's servant to do good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is a God, or he is God's servant, an angel of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of your conscience. In other words, Paul literally says, first and foremost, because of your conscience, because of your relationship with God. Now in verse 8, if you look there, it says, Then God again, he spoke to Noah's sons with him, saying, And as far as me, behold, behold, I will establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that goes out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I will establish my covenant with you. Never again, verse 11, shall flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now as we read on here, guys, I want to point out that it's important to notice in these verses that this covenant that God was establishing with Noah included Noah's descendants, or as verse 12 says here at the very end, it says, for, perfect, for, for perpetual generations. And in this covenant, the reason why it's stated specifically in verse 9 as you read there is because God was specifically testifying to the, to the um, unconditionalness of it, meaning that it was, God wasn't making it conditional. All these things that he was instructing and saying he was doing, wrapping up in this covenant that we know that was sealed with a sign the, uh, and a promise that God would never judge again the earth in the way that he had done before, destroy the earth in the way that he had done before, is God was saying, this is unconditional. It's, it's on me, God was saying. And he promised that he would never again send another flood to destroy all life on the earth. In fact, when God spoke this to Noah, he was assuring him of this. And we know this because God spoke it to Noah and he said to him three times, never again. Never again, Noah. I'm never again going to do this. Noah, never again. And we see this emphatic message being delivered that, that God's really wanting Noah to get clarity and understanding this. You know, it's twice in verse 11 where God says never again, and then again in verse 15 if you look, for, look there. But when we read this, it's important to notice that God did not lay any conditions that men or women had to obey. He simply said in verse 15 that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And it's clear that God spoke these words to Noah and his son because he wanted them to enjoy life. God was, was given instructions that was pertaining to the multiplication of life, to the sustaining of life, to the protection of life. But he saved Noah and his family because he wanted them to enjoy life. And God spoke these words saying, Noah, never again, never again, never again. I'm going to give you a sign because he wanted him to enjoy the life that he had been saved to live and not worry 
about a judgment or a flood every time it would again rain. And this is further revealed by the fact that God tied this promise to a rainbow, which is a visual reminder for Noah and for us today <coughs> that the rainbow is symbolic. It's symbolic. It reminds us of this covenant and the promises that are found in it. And in the Jewish culture, I love this, the rabbis teach that the rainbow is symbolic of the arrowless, arrowless bow of an archer. In that, they say that the bow is empty because God's arrow, uh, the arrow of God's judgment has already been shot. Reminding us of God's promise to never destroy the earth with a flood again. And all these years later, guys, listen, this is the cool thing about it. All these years later, the rainbow which still appears in the cloud all over the world is more than a reminder of God's promise to us. It's more than a reminder of God's promise. It is a symbol of God's faithfulness. After all of these years of seeing God's promise kept to us and the rainbow still appearing in the sky, it's a symbol of God's faithfulness to keep His promises. And it's a reminder to us of how our loving God keeps all of His promises even unto us still today. All throughout Scripture, God's promises are attached to a sign. An evidence. God says, I'm going to make a promise to you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to secure that promise. I'm going to make my promise evident to you because of this sign. Here, look at this. Keep your eyes on this. Let me prove it to you, God says. And such is the case also with the promise of our salvation that we have in Jesus from the future judgment that's to come. God says, here's a promise. You put your faith in Jesus. I'm going to save you from the from the from the future judgment that's to come. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you evidence of that so that you can have faith and trust in me. And Scripture teaches us that, that first of all, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a sign. The fact that Jesus died and then rose again and was seen by many and ascended into the Father's uh, house where He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God where we can go to Him, where He can be involved in our lives. The fact that Jesus is alive, that's a sign, God says. That's an evidence of my future promise that you can take hope in. And not only that, the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we get another assurance. We get another sign or an evidence of the promise, and it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And these are the signs that God has given to us which, pushes, which points us forward to the promise of the second return of Jesus Christ who says He's going to come back for us, who says He's going to save us from the judgment by fire that is yet to come. And, and because we have these signs alongside the evidences of God's past faithfulness, we can look forward and trust God with the promises that He has made to us. In light of this, we too can have the confidence in God's promises and enjoy the life. We can look forward to God's promises. We don't have to worry. We can enjoy the life that you and I have been saved to live. Life and life more abundantly. To come boldly to the throne of God. To call upon our Heavenly Father in time of need. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22 says, For all the promises of God in Him are yes and amen. To the glory of of God through us. And He who establishes us with you in Jesus Christ has anointed us in God, and He who has sealed us, He has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
the worship team wants to come up, I want to end with this. In closing, I want to point out that, guys, in the Bible, there are only three accounts of men who have ever saw a rainbow. And that's not to mean to say that nobody other than these three men has ever seen a rainbow, but the Bible only records three times. And it's a really cool picture for us. Three times accounts of men who saw rainbows. And here we see that Noah saw the rainbow after the storm, just like we typically see it today, right? The storm comes, clouds start to dissipate, and boom, the sun comes out and we get a beautiful rainbow. But then in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28, the next time we read about it, and it's the prophet Ezekiel, and he tells us that he's seen the rainbow even while in the midst of the storm. Now think about that. He says, even while in the midst of the storm, a storm, he says, that was filled with winds, immense clouds, and flashing lightnings. And then in Revelation chapter 4, at the end of the Bible, in chapter 6 through 8, the Apostle John tells of being taken up to the very throne room of God and seeing a complete rainbow that encircled the very throne of God. And that rainbow that John saw was a rainbow that was seen before the storm, before God's final judgment broke loose or will break loose upon the earth. We know that John was caught up and he got to see these things. In light of this, I believe that there's an important lesson for us to see. Guys, in that, when the storms of life come, we should always look for the rainbows. We should always look for the rainbow of God's covenant promise that's been made to us. And like the Apostle John, we might see the rainbow before the storm, but there's going to be a rainbow. God giving you a sign telling you it's going to be okay. There might be a rainbow before the storm. Or like Ezekiel, we might see the rainbow while in the midst of the storm. The little glimmer of hope, that sign that God tells you, even in the midst of the storm, I got you, it's going to be okay. Or like Noah, we might have to wait until after the storm to see the rainbow. But the fact of the matter is, we will always see the rainbows of God's promises if we look by faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us, Lord, to have that faith to trust in You, to rely upon You, to cling to You, to know, God, that even in the storms that come into our lives, even when everything is completely out of control, the wind's blowing, the lightning's crashing, the rains are coming, God, we have that assurance, Lord, that You know, that You see, that You're in control, that You are multiplying life, sustaining life, protecting life, and God, making it so that we can enjoy this life You've given us to live, this life that You've saved us to. Father, we rejoice and worship You this morning. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't you guys stand and we'll sing a song of worship.